Guys, I want to thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com, my friend Cody Nelson, the glassing guru, the optics authority. He's the optics manager at GoHunt.com. If you have any interest in buying optics or have any glassing questions, whether it be tripods, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, range finders, anything to do with glassing, give Cody a call, 702-847-8747, that's extension 2, or you can email him at optics at gohunt.com. You can also send him a text or call him on his cell phone at 602-399-3699. Guys, right now at GoHunt.com Insider, you can take advantage of the free trial. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott. You're going to be able to take advantage of a free trial of the Insider. GoHunt is always adding more value for their Insider members. They've now added real 3D maps as a part of Insider for no additional cost. What an incredible value. Very soon, they're going to have their mobile app up as well. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash Scott and sign up for a free trial. If you're already an Insider member, it's automatically part of your Insider membership. And you can just go to the Maps tab up at the top once you sign in as an Insider. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. That's the gear that I wear on all of my hunts. To find out more, you can go to KUIU.com, Kuyu.com. They're a direct-to-consumer company. They sell everything off of the Kuyu.com website. I also do a lot of question and answer on my Instagram where I'm answering questions about guys wanting to know about gear about Kuyu, so tune into my Instagram. I want to thank Kuyu for their sponsorship. I also want to thank Phonescope.com. Use the JScott20 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount on all orders. Again, thanks to all the sponsors of my podcast. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today's going to be a fun episode with Creed Christian at from Elfrida, Arizona. Creed, how you doing? I'm doing great, Jay. How you doing? Good. I've been an admirer of yours, uh, follower, admire your work there on Instagram, and uh, fellow cooster hunter. You're a do-it-yourself cooster hunter from southern Arizona, so I thought I need to get Creed on the phone and uh, have a little chat with him about cooster. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I've been an admirer of yours for a while now also. I, kinda, I like what you're doing, and I think you're helping a lot of people, so it's nice to be here. Awesome, buddy. I um, want to talk, uh, before we dive in, a little bit of a background on yourself. Uh, a lot of people are not familiar with Elfrida, Arizona. Talk about where you live, where you grew up, and uh, kind of your love for cooster hunting, how you kind of got to where you are now. Yeah, so Elfrida is a tiny little farm town in uh, the center of Cochise County. Um, it's pretty easy to miss, but... Uh, yeah, it's a great place to live. You know, it's it's surrounded by sky islands, as you call them. Um, so growing up, uh, I come from a hunting family. Uh, all my uncles, I mean, I really kind of owe it to them. My mom, I, you know, my stepdad, they really kind of, they got me in the outdoors. And and uh, as a kid, I just, I watched them hunt coos deer and it, it just became a passion of mine. And um <clears throat> it's more than a passion at this point. It's kind of taken over my life to some degree, but uh, I'm living a pretty good life down here. I, I really enjoy myself. I enjoy 
my family. Uh, I've got a great job. You know, I work for a great company down here. So, yeah, life is good. Um, I've kind of transitioned a half for a while for, for the majority of my adult life to uh, really focus on archery hunting, mature bucks. That's that's kind of what I look forward to every year. And, uh, you know, I get involved with quite a bit of rifle hunting as well. But for myself, it's typically, you know, archery hunting. That's fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to asking you some questions. Um, one of which uh, is, you know, Elfrida has, like you said, the Sky Island mountain chains. And what those are, are basically, you know, just out of these desert flats, just erupt these big mountain chains. And so they've kind of gotten the name of Sky Island. Talk a, a little bit about some of the mountain ranges that surround uh, where you live and, and some of the mountain ranges that you're familiar with. Uh, so... If it's anywhere, uh, you know, within driving distance of me, I've pretty much been there and been on it and chased deer around there and uh, left some blood and sweat behind on pretty much every mountain around. But, uh, you know, from my house, just looking east, I can see the Chiricahuas, uh, south into the Pedregosas, um, the Swiss Elms, and then looking west, I can see the Mule Mountains and the Dragoons. Uh, then north, I can see the Winchesters. Um, I can see Mount Graham, Dos Cabezas, and then, you know, just one valley over, you start to get in the Huachucas and the Whetstones and the Rincons and, uh, you know, basically just all the Sky Islands of, in the southeast corner of the state are, there are mountains that I'm familiar with and that, you know, mountains I've spent some time in and still do on a regular basis. And for those people listening that aren't familiar with the actual chain of mountain names, um, what Creed's describing is like Unit 30A, 30B, 29, 31, 32, um, 35A, 35B, I would assume. Uh, I, I would assume a little bit in the Catalinas in, in 33 as well, and maybe the Rincons. Yep, yep. I, I haven't ventured into the Catalinas much, uh, so majority of my time in 33 has been on the south half and the east half uh then 34b um and then you know i've ventured up into 27 as well just a little bit but yeah that's that's a little far north for me so okay let's talk about right now get a conditions report uh, obviously we're over the weekend here, we've had a little bit of a front come through. Um, talk about conditions, uh, not only from a terrain standpoint, but vegetation, what you're seeing out there uh, compared to uh, years past. Yeah, it, it is dry. It is extremely dry. Probably the driest I've ever seen it. Um, it's to the point where I'm starting to get a little worried about some deer. I, I do believe the the mule deer are going to be okay. They 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 travel a bunch, and there's typically cattle around, so there's always some water for them. But uh, some of these white-tailed deer, especially uh, in the bigger mountain ranges where they typically relied on you know small springs and seeps and creeks, I'm pretty worried about them. I mean, there's one buck in particular that well, really a handful of bucks in there, but one of our target bucks at this point, I'm a little concerned that he's not going to be there when it's time to hunt them for my wife come Thanksgiving. So, and the reason for that is the, the water that typically runs underneath them in the Creek is, is completely gone. It has been for a while now. And, uh, 
it's intermittent underneath him a few miles but even that's starting to dry up so we had a storm last week that put down some moisture and i was just up there a few days ago and unfortunately it, it wasn't enough moisture to leave any behind in the creek bed so um i looked for him and i didn't find him which has me concerned and and if he does move you know it's going to end up being a few miles and that what i'm really worried about is that that putting uh him in a position to be found by other hunters in which he typically wouldn't have been seen or you know these deer are just congregating around what little water there is and and i think they're just going to get picked off by predators so i'm a little worried about that yes. but as far as veg sorry to cut you off but no. as far as vegetation goes it's surprisingly uh okay um the grass as far as uh you know stuff for them to graze on there's not much that that's pretty thin but there's lots to browse on still surprisingly the acorn crop in some places is amazing i you know that winter rain must have just really helped them but as far as monsoons go like the majority of the state it, it was pretty non-existent you know you touched on a few things there that that lead me to other questions one of which is you talk about the acorn crop uh, is it your opinion that the acorn crop throughout the different mountain ranges that you've been in uh, is fairly widespread? In other words, is the ac acorn crop uh, decent in most of the Sky Island mountain ranges that you've been in in the last couple months? Yep, yep, surprisingly. Uh, but yeah, I've been under a few trees where, you know, there's acorns on the ground an inch thick. I mean, I don't, I'm surprised that the bears are even moving, you know, I'm not just sitting in one spot vacuuming vacuuming up acorns with that being said uh, hunters out there listening um when they hear that it's a decent acorn crop year talk a little bit about your experience with when you see conditions like this where it's dry but there's acorns on the ground what do you do and what could you tell people that might help them uh, find you know more deer and how could that make them a little bit more effective <clears throat> well typically if the acorn crop is good uh a lot of these a lot of the areas around me there's acorns throughout the mountain ranges so for many deer it really doesn't change much other than you know you might catch them standing under an oak tree more than they would have but a lot of places like on the fringe country of desert and oak country that might pull more deer out of that fringe country you know ocotillo uh just that, that fringe country where the vegetation changes, it might pull a lot of those deer up into the oaks if there's suitable amount of water to keep them there. When you talk about, another question I have is, you know, talking about this particular buck that you're, you've been watching and you're afraid he's going to move and move into a vulnerable position, um, you're not necessarily worried about him uh you know dying of, of of thirst if you will not having enough water not being able to find it what you're saying is that buck where you've been kind of had him pinned down uh for a period of time you're worried that he's going to leave that position because he doesn't have the available water which is going to make him move into another area where either a he is susceptible to predation or you're worried that potentially it's going to take him into another drainage where maybe it's more available for uh, people to see him, whether it be closer to a road or what have you. Talk about um, deer specifically in your mind, um, you know, 
will they flat leave the country and go find water and then stay there or will they go get some water come back for two or three days go back or is it your experience when it gets this dry that they'll actually move and kind of stay in that proximity of water you know jay this is kind of a new situation that i've never dealt with much i, I I've, ne I've never seen it this dry and in the in the you know this particular situation where this buck is living i've never ever ever seen the creek bed dry uh where he typically waters and it's dry now so now it's intermittent about a mile down so he can travel about a mile down and get to water the question is is will he stay you know i i gotta believe he's probably gonna stay down there at least at times rather than travel at three four miles back up to the you know that nasty drainage that he likes to live in so to be honest with you i don't know and we're, we're gonna find out i hope but uh, i'm really hoping that he travels back to where he's comfortable i i just i'm worried that he's not so it's really going to be it's kind of a learning a learning situation for me and um and as well as everybody else it's just it's dry and uh it, um you know you you talked a little bit earlier about my concern with him moving and not so much just dying of dehydration and and that's that's there's a possibility that that can happen as well if it doesn't rain if we don't get some substantial moisture between now and say mid-december in the next month a lot of these deer are going to be in trouble and uh fortunately that storm last week put some water down i think that might have saved some lives but if we go another month without any moisture in these higher temperatures it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, from a strategy, just trying to get in your brain a little bit about the, the train wreck that's probably going in in your brain when you go and look for your buck and he's not there and you know it is water, do you exhaust looking for him in the area where you know that he likes to live or do you find yourself fighting, wanting to start branching towards some of the closer water where you think he might move and how is wrestling with that in your brain, which all of us as hunters do, how are you working that out internally, trying to figure out what the best place for you to utilize your time for scouting and, and looking for that buck? So I know, you know, what I do know is he's very comfortable with his core area. I mean, he's a mature deer, seven years of, of doing the same thing. Um, you know, he's very comfortable with that country. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat it as if, he's going to go back to his core area and I'm going to continue to scout and, and we might even go into the hunt, uh, assuming that if we hunt, you know, three, four days in a row, looking into his core area, he's going to make it back in that at some point. If that doesn't pan out, then we're going to slowly start venturing our way closer to the water and, uh, something that gets touched on a bunch by most of your, guess you know is north slopes and so what's you know what's going to happen is we're basically going to really start hammering every north slope between where his core area is and where we believe that he's watering and hopefully we turn him up and once we do turn him up if it, it on one of those north slopes i'm going to assume that you know, he's kind of maybe changed core areas temporarily, and uh, we're going to go about it that way. Hopefully, 
hopefully, you know, it appears to me like coos bucks, big coos bucks, they really only need to water about once every three days, especially, you know, come this time of year. So hopefully he's just making a one day, three mile trek to get some water, working his way back and staying there for three days. So that was kind of what we're crossing our fingers on. When you talk about that rain that came last week, even though it didn't uh, run any water or fill up any of the dirt tanks, um, how much do you think that it needs to rain to get where the vegetation has enough moisture content where maybe it can push that, you know, three day, if you're thinking he's watering every three days, you know, was there enough to maybe push that to four, five, six days? Or do you feel like it was not enough and he's still going to probably maintain that two or three day window of having to get something to drink you know i i really just don't think it was enough um i don't know how much they got exactly i i you know i could look up there and see the storms and uh you know it, it looked like a fair amount but when you go up there and everything's just powder and bone dry so i don't think it made much of a difference how much how much does it need to rain to make a difference i, I you know i really couldn't answer that but i'm gonna guess we're going to need two or three really good storms in a row, some snowpack, something to really help these deer out. When you're trying to, you know, put yourself in the position of trying to give guys that have tags that are going on right now and, you know, throughout the month of November and December, the earlier tags, and then even the mid-December tags. So, you you know, you're covering the spectrum of November and December. Um strategy-wise, maybe guys that are used to hunting certain areas all over southern Arizona, um, you know, what specific uh, advice would you give them as far as choosing where they're going to hunt? And let's say some of these listeners, they don't even have a chance to go down and scout. So um, what would be your advice for those people that, you know, might not have the time as far as trying to pick an area to go? Um, Because the other thing to play into it is, probably a lot of other people are going to think the same thing so try and give me some psychology here of what you would tell someone to 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 try on their hunt you know traditionally when looking for a place to hunt for myself um in 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 the majority of this coos country in this portion of the state there's always been water somewhere nearby whether it's a seep whether it's a dirt tank, whether it's a metal tank. So traditionally, I've always just gone by the vegetation or, you know, look at Google Earth, find some really good north slopes, um, just some really good drainages with decent vegetation. And I mean, we can go into what vegetation I think is is ideal, but uh, traditionally, I've never taken water into consideration much because there's never been a place in this region where it looks really good and there's no deer because of no water. Now, um, you know, every place that I've been to that traditionally that I, you know, I've been keeping an eye on target bucks, the bucks are still there. Um, so I really wouldn't go into it with any, you know, looking at it any different. If I got there and I'm really not turning up deer and I feel confident in my grassing abilities and whatnot, then I, at that point I would start looking at the maps and find, you know, the nearest 
the nearest permanent water source. And then I would hunt within a mile and a half of that permanent water source. And, and just hopefully you don't have to deal with too many other people. But at, at this point in the game, if you haven't scouted and you're just showing up to a place, you know, you're going to have to fight that battle when you get there. You talk about North Slopes um, and you say that, you know, you've listened to my podcast and heard guests and myself talk about North Slopes. Uh, tell me in your opinion, and feel free if you disagree with anything you've heard me say, tell me in your opinion why North Slopes this time of year are so important. <clears throat> well, um, it, for the most part, uh, you know, the, the deer, just like humans, they don't want to be in the sun for the majority of the day, especially mature bucks. So shade is, is number one. And then, you know, there's a lot of those, the, the North Slopes because it sees a lot less sunlight in the mornings and well throughout all of the day. But uh, when there's moisture on the ground, as, you know, seeds fall on the ground, it typically tend to germinate and grow the proper vegetation on those north slopes that the deer like to eat um so it's it's a kind of a it's kind of a there's a multiple reasons bedding is the biggest reason uh vegetation and food is the the next you know that's the next biggest reason um <clears throat> so yeah, I guess I kind of got, I lost track of what the question was again, No, Jay. I mean, talking about north slopes, you're talking about bedding and you're talking about food, which I think are great points. And, you know, I've, I've spent so much time trying to help people understand that exactly what you said, that deer are, you know, they're, they're like you are. If you have to, if you had to stay outside all the time, you would figure out how to play, how to get in the cooler spot. You would try and figure out how to have the most cover where you feel secure and where you can get something to eat. And I think you covered that very, very well. I think the hard part for a lot of cooster hunters is from a binocular standpoint and from a glassing standpoint, it's really easy to sit up with the sun at your back and, you know, and or look at like south facing slopes or west facing slopes where it's more open and not as thick and you you can just pan really fast and and you know pick up deer quickly whereas you've got the north facing slopes where a lot of times there's it's really thick and you know you, a lot of times you'll see you know legs or a belly or a tail or you know just a head up feeding and you can't even see their body but w would you agree with me that uh, especially on these October, November, and even early December hunts, that that's where the majority of the deer, and especially mature bucks, spend their, their time. So in other words, if you're trying to find a mature buck and you're not looking where a mature buck spends the majority of his life, in my opinion, you're missing out on a great opportunity to be more efficient and effective of looking right where they should be curious just your overall thoughts on that whole thing yeah i, I agree 100 percent. i would say that if you never looked at a south facing slope which in my opinion you got to look at everything especially in the morning but uh if you never looked at a south facing slope ever and you only looked at north facing slopes you're going to see 80 to 90 percent of the deer you would have seen even if you did look at south facing slopes. So I guess what I'm saying is I believe that 
80 to 90% of the deer and, and probably a higher percentage than that of mature bucks are going to spend the majority of their day on north facing slopes. That, now, that's not to say that I don't think a few bucks do spend all their time on a south facing slope. I can think of a few bucks in particular over the years that have lived their entire life or the majority of their life on the south facing slope. And and when that happens, it's typically because they live on a big giant mountain where the north face of it is just full of cliffs and almost uninhabitable. And and for some reason, those big giant, especially in, in the big mountains like the Chiricahuas and the Wachucas and the Grams, where the Pinaleños, where uh, you have these huge mountain faces where there really isn't much of a north slope other than being a cliff, um, that that actually has a you know a few more deer living on the south facing slope than than what you would expect so i don't believe that you should completely never look at a south facing slope but um i do believe that you need to be spending the majority of your time looking at north facing slope and when i plan out my day every time i'm going to hunt there's never a time where the night before i'm not on google earth looking at my you know trying to plan my day out and if, if I can, you know, there's kind of two different ways to go about it. If you can get on a cone-shaped hill or something similar to that where you can see tons of country and multiple north-facing slopes and you spend the majority of the day on that one hill, you know, there's times where I'll do that or there's times where I'll choose a ridge that runs north and south and has multiple fingers coming off of it that run east and west that create multiple north facing slopes and if i can run down one of those and look at five or six really good big north facing slopes in one day that's really the way that i like to hunt yeah yeah i mean you're hitting the nail right on the head of how i like to roll as well and i think you bring up a good point of talking about the south slopes and we might as well talk about that there are south slopes that i have in my mind and so i i to be fair and not to be misleading to people, I think it's important you bring up a good point that don't disregard the south slopes because even within a south slope, you can have little cuts and crevices that create enough shade in the afternoon that that gives them all they need to live on a south-facing slope all the time. So I would say look for those benches of, you know, how a lot of times you'll have like these big open yellow slopes, but then it'll come down to a little bench and it'll just be a mesquite thicket. And it'll be like 80 by 80 yards or 100 by 100 yards. And I mean, it's just a thick pocket of mesquite or oak that's like right on a little bench. Look for those kind of things. Or when you're looking at a south facing slope that's got a lot of open country, look for those little, little folds um or those ridge lines that just give just enough slope that as soon as the shade starts to you know move over into the western sky as it you know as 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 the day progresses that it's going to provide plenty of shade um but I, I agree with you as a general rule of thumb a coos deer hunter if he literally never spent any time looking at the south facing slopes i i still feel confident that they would see way more deer i think the biggest problem is people like looking at those big open slopes because they see them early in the morning yeah and, but then they spend too much time there it's fine if you if you utilize the sun and utilize that open area hit the open stuff but then start focusing like creed like you said 
on those ridge lines that you can walk and cover country or those points where you're looking uh, at multiple north facing uh, ridges that give you you know a good vantage into where you you know you're if you can look at multiple north facing ridges you're actually upping your odds of being able to see more deer because you're not just looking at one you're looking at four or five and that's one of the thing i love about like finger ridges and stuff big finger ridges where um let's say in the afternoon you're looking straight west and you've got a ridge that's running north and south and then you've got fingers that are basically running east and west down off of that creating all kinds of fingers of shade now on one side you'll have the open yellow grass and on the other side you'll have the thick either you know mesquite or oak uh, or you know brush of some sort that's going to give them that cover um, you had mentioned ideal vegetation in your mind um, it down there in southern arizona let's talk a, lo a little bit about ideal vegetation and what you feel like uh, coos deer normally, and, and if you want to say bucks, are feeding on this time of year. Yeah, there, there's one one bush in particular that if, if it's on a north slope, you can pretty much count on deer being there. And, and you know, we refer to it as mountain mahogany. I've heard some guys call it buck brush and a few other things. But uh, as far as we're concerned, it's called mountain mahogany. And when you start getting mountain mahogany on north slopes mixed in with some oak or or you really get some choya mixed in there with that mountain mahogany, you, you better watch out because there's going to be some deer there. And, and nine times out of ten, there's going to be some bucks there. When you talk about, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about bucks and your experience non-rutting periods with coos deer bucks. When you're just glassing along and you pick up a small coos deer buck, in your mind, how often do you think that deer is alone or that deer has multiple bucks with him? I need to keep looking. What's your percentage, would you say, in that scenario if you glass up a small forky that's, you know, a year and a half old? Um, what does your mind think when you see that? Yeah, this time of year, um, especially on a, if you are on a north face where there's typically you know i'm expecting to see other deer uh i'm ex you know 65 75 percent of the time i would expect him to have a buddy or two you know if if for some reason it's the middle of the day and i catch him walking across the south facing slope where there's no other vegetation uh, there's a good chance he's alone and he's just cruising or looking you know looking to get to some shade or go get some water or something but if he's on a north facing slope where i I naturally expect to see deer uh, anyways, there's a pretty good chance he's with another buck, especially a deer of that age. Now you you start seeing some older bucks, you know, in that seven, eight-year-old range, five-year-old range, um, you know, he, he has a good chance he's alone or there's a good chance he's got a, a younger buddy or two. I, I was listening to a podcast. I, I, I'm not sure who you're talking to. Maybe it's Phil, but, um, you know, it's interesting as – or, you know, I don't know who it was, but it's interesting that as these deer get older um, and they start to become mature, this time of year, it's it's really not that often that you see them with other deer of the same age. At least that's my experience. I mean, and there's always exceptions. I guess what you're saying is a big deer very rarely will have another big deer with them, but it's very common to have you know, two-year-old deer with them, three-year-old deer, a couple of smaller 
bucks and then you'll have one big deer you rarely if i hear you right you rarely see two big really good bucks mature big big frame bucks together this time of year yeah that's correct now when you go back to august september that's a little more common to see you know a couple of mature deer together but this time of year as their testosterone starts to peak or grow i just don't think they tolerate tolerate each other near as much seems like as soon as they shed their velvet that that buddy syndrome kind of wears off where they're fine with smaller bucks and you know bucks that they have dominance over but any other buck that's you know similar to their stature or age they just i I would totally agree with you um very common to have you know let's say 105 to 100 you know 15 inch buck a big solid big mature buck and very common to have you know some small two points maybe a small three point a spike or something with them but i i mean i i'm trying to even think off the top of my head if i've ever seen you know like two 110 bucks just together this time of year and i don't even think i can think of any circumstances where that's happened yeah i, I totally agree it, what's what's interesting is how often i hear uh you know two guys talk about or guys talk about these two giant bucks they jumped and they were like man you guys are you guys uh are pretty fortunate because i can never i can never run into that let's talk a little bit about the country that you prefer as you know someone that lives down there i mean you've got everything from the desert floor to the ocotillo ridges leading up into the mesquite and on up into the oak and then up into the pines is there a certain um vegetation zone that you just that's what you love to hunt and then take that a step further is there another vegetation zone that actually that's where you think the bigger bucks live in but you actually don't like hunting it because it's difficult or you know kind of talk about that well uh you know i really enjoy hunting it all from the bottom to the top um i do want to be able to glass so you start getting to that the tip top of the higher stuff um, where you start to get into the pines and stuff. I, I don't hunt that as often just because I can't look into it. Um, that there's some giant bucks that grow in that stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I primarily archery hunt and I primarily, you know, 99% of the time spot and stock. So, uh, if I was a tree stand hunter, I would probably be spending some more time up in that country. But as a, you know, rifle hunter or archery spot and stock hunter, I typically spend most of my time in that, uh, you know, that oak woodland grass, just the traditional who's deer type habitat down into the low country. Uh, in, in this region, unlike some of that stuff south of Tucson, we don't have the big numbers of deer down in the, in the flats just yet. We're, they're starting to show up down in that stuff, but um, especially some places around the mules and then obviously down along the San Pedro River. But the majority of these mountain ranges don't have the high numbers of deer down in the flats, not here. So um, that leaves me from the bottom of the mountain where the oaks start, you know, the Ocotillo transitions into oaks and then uh, up to the pines. So from the pines down, basically, um, there are multiple drainages where the oaks come out of the mountains and follow a drainage or a creek all the way down out into the mesquites where I'm starting to see a lot more big deer uh, in that flat stuff, in that flat oak country. But realistically, 
any of these places are great and i find big bucks in all of it it, it just comes down to them surviving to five six seven years old so um the trick is to get to a place in any of this country or from the bottom floor all the way up that isn't being hunted and uh, that can be tricky at times the the majority of the valley that i live in and and really even the neighboring valleys there's tons of private land so one thing that I do is I take it, you know, most people hate it and I, I do to some degree, but uh, I take advantage of it. So if you can find a way to skirt around that private land and get up, you know, along the border of it onto that forest land where the people just aren't getting to because it takes some effort um, that, you, you know, you're typically that's where you're going to see some of your bigger bucks. And in and, and nine times out of 10 or, or six times out of 10, more like. I'm in that oak woodland country. I want to take just a quick diversion here because I know you have a passion as well for desert mule deer and harvested a great buck, I think last season, maybe the season before. Talk a little bit about the desert mule deer and and just your general thoughts on them as far as a trophy and, and some of the size and quality of bucks that you're seeing out there in the desert. You know, this desert country here uh, at times produces some really, really good deer. And as a coos hunter, uh, sometimes it, it, it becomes a distraction, you know, because I do like big mule deer. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I shot a buck back in August. Um, and he, was, he was a great buck. I'd been watching him for a few years. Uh, as far as quality goes in this country, um you know realistically you start shooting something over 160 you're shooting a pretty good buck but i I would that's i would say i think that's fair to say anywhere south of the grand canyon in this state but um every year there's a few 200 inch bucks come out of this valley and the neighboring valleys um so i mean this country does produce produce great deer the tricky part about it is they tend to live out in the flats where it is very very difficult to hunt them um if you can get you can get on some high points and glass the flats you can turn you can turn them up at times um there's a lot of farm country here Uh, you know i'm actually surrounded by farms where i live and uh you know like i said it's distracting at times when you see some of these big bucks you know standing out in the field but um so there's always that option as well for guys who like to hunt near the farms. That's really not my style, but uh, it, it, it does, this country does put, put out some big mule deer at times. Let's jump ahead on the desert mule deer because I get a lot of questions. Um, your desert mule deer, I believe, are the croaky, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the croaky mule deer, those are not the same deer as, say, what would be up on the Kaibab or the Strip. These are desert deer found along the mexican border um often known as just desert you know desert mule deer is what a lot of people call them but they're a different subspecies than say uh even the even the bucks you know in colorado or utah or you know some of the more northern regions um is that right yeah that's right definitely and uh you know it it's actually pretty apparent for somebody who's looked at them for quite a bit of time they they have a much more of a gray to them and uh kind of a black a lot more distinct black on their face at times and then a real white face 
versus some of the deer, even in the White Mountains of eastern Arizona, all the way up to the Kaibab and north from there, where those deer tend to have more brown, a brown hue to them. Um, body size, traditionally is smaller here, but at times there are some giant, giant, very heavy body deer that grow in these desert flats as well. But uh, yeah, typically... It's very difficult to get your traditional 30-inch wide, deep forked four-point with kickers coming off the side. That That's not um, as common here. You do get some funky stuff growing in, in these desert mule deer, just crazy um, kickers and just non-traditional growth, you know, big three-points with kickers and uh, big two-points as well. Just really cool deer, um, but different in antler configuration at times than say your Rocky Mountain mule deer. When would you say the prime 10 days of rutting for desert mule deer in that country is, um, you know, if I was going to take a stab at it, I would say like January 10th to the 20th. Um, when would you say for the, for the desert mule deer is the prime rut? Yeah, I think the further, which is odd, you would think that it would, it would, uh, change as you go North and South, but I believe the further west you go in the state, the later the rut, uh, desert mule deer rut appears to be in this corner of the state, and then and and uh, down in the boot hill of New Mexico. Um, I'm fortunate enough to you know live very close to all these desert mule deer, and it traditionally uh, is usually right on schedule, unlike the coos deer, which seem to be sporadic at times. But the rut here traditionally. Uh, the day after Christmas, you know, those most of the does have a big buck on them, and by the 28th, they are rocking, and uh, there's does getting bred. I've seen more does bred like that 27th, 28th, 29th of December than any, you know, 90 to 1, or 90 to 90% 90 of the does I've seen bred have been in December, 10% in that first week of January. After that, you still see some rutting, some rutting um, intermittent rutting throughout january but it really dies off after that first week in january so okay if i was going to be hunting deer in this region it'd be the day after christmas okay so like the five days after christmas and the five or five day first five days in january like that that's your window so er, earlier than what i'm thinking yep in this region yep okay um take that a take that one more step what do you see as far as the coos deer as you said, it's a little more sporadic, but if you had to pin down a 10-day window when you thought the coos deer were at their peak of rutting, when would that be? <laughs> that That's so hard to answer because I've in the last 10 years, I've seen it from the end of December to the end of January. and But on average, if I had to pick a, you know seven days to be here, it would probably be the 13th through the 20th. Okay. And why in your mind... Are, are the coos deer a little bit more unpredictable? What What do you think causes that? You know, it's, it's kind of a mystery to me. Um, I Yeah, it's just a big mystery to me, honestly. I know that, you know, mule deer does around the, this time of year into January are in big groups where I, I really don't know. I don't it's easier for a buck to come into those does and but that really shouldn't affect when they come into cycle so why it changes on uh on these whitetail i really couldn't tell you jay 
but it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, while you were talking, it got me thinking back to you talking about how dry it is and the Sky Islands and having the experience down there in, in that country. What are our Goulds turkeys doing down there, and how do you think they're faring uh, with this drought? Uh, I think they're doing amazing. I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not real, uh, familiar with, you know, the, how turkeys, the biology of turkeys, but I know the quail are doing amazing down here. So, and I'm going to assume that the turkeys are, are doing great as well. Um, traditionally the turkeys in these mountain ranges are in areas where there's permanent water, especially in Creek beds and stuff like that. And, as dry as it is, a lot of those creek beds at least still have puddles. So there's plenty of water for the turkeys. Uh, there's a, a great winter moisture the last two winters going into the spring. Um, I've seen a ton of ton of young turkeys this year. It, it just The turkeys down here are doing amazing. And every mountain range that I've seen them in, the, the numbers have really just exploded. And I really can't wait to get my tag. I hope it comes someday. But <laughs> <laughs> you, you gaining on some points? I, you know, I'm in double digits, but I think I have a ways to go. Yeah. Um, with the units down there that you mentioned, if, if you had to say for coos deer, let's talk coos deer specifically, all those units around, whether, whether it be, well, any of the ones you talked about, which one do you think is probably the worst? Like, whether it be access or just not a lot of deer, which one is kind of the, the stepchild, if you will, of, of all those units? Hmm. You know, what necessarily might be the worst for me is, is not necessarily going to be what's worse for everybody else. For me, I like big deer. Um, I, I really, I'm, I'm really intrigued by genetics and antler growth and, and I'll, you know, antlers just really do it for me. So um, when it, as far as that goes, uh, in my opinion, out of all these units down here, and some people are going to disagree with me because they they killed this giant deer in this unit, but 30B uh, Mule Mountains Dragoons, in my opinion, that's excluding the river because that river country is amazing as far as genetics go. But uh, 30B, in my opinion, has the worst genetics. It has some access issues <clears throat> as well, so that, that makes it tricky. But um, as far as big, giant deer with extra points and you know, long tines, it, it really struggles in that department for me. I have a theory on why that is. I, in my opinion, those mountain ranges are isolated and you don't get an opportunity to see genetics mix like say in the Huachucas where you have Coos country from Sierra Vista all the way to Nogales <clears throat> or, you know, like the Pedregosas Chiricahuas where you have Coos country from the border all the way up to Wilcox in the Dosca bases, you have an opportunity for those genetics. You, you know, you might get a doe and a buck that never seen each other and they breed. And, you know, the buck was a big, massive thing with some extra points. And the doe's dad was a big, long tined, really wide deer. You, you just get an opportunity to mix the genetics up a bit. Whereas in the dragoons, there's no country nearby where whitetail are kind of new, new genetics are coming into the scene. It's just, it's isolated. It's the same deer breeding each other over and over and tons of big two points, two by threes, you know, G, long G3s are tough to find. Not to say that they're not there. There's great deer there. There's great deer in every range here, but um, worst, in my opinion, is that 30B. 
let's talk about um, are, are these the good old days or do you think the good old days are, are behind us or do you think the good old days of coos deer hunting are, are in front of us mm, the, the numbers are going up there's deer showing up in new places all the time um, I don't know that these are the good old days and I say that because it is very difficult anymore for a deer to see six years old uh, everybody, everybody has, you know, Swaro 15s and tripods and everybody spotting scopes. Everybody listens to the J. Scott Outdoors yeah, podcast. Yeah, and yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, in that regard, it, I think, I think we're kind of plateaued and I think we will be for a while. Um, there's going to continue to be giant deer killed every year. Um, there's going to be continue to be new deer in new places so that's a good thing these little deer are are very uh tolerant to different conditions and different vegetation and they're grown uh i can't imagine that if i went back to some of these mountain ranges in the 60s if i can go back in time with these you know binoculars and this, these optics that i i wouldn't see giants on on a bunch of the hills that i i don't see them now because the deer just can't live there they can't grow old there i should say what you're saying is people the equipment's gotten so good and the knowledge has gotten so good and in essence hunters have gotten very efficient and with what they do that deer just don't really stand as much of a chance as maybe they did before when the tripods and the great binos existed yeah i agree i agree with that 100 percent. let's talk a little bit about big deer you love big deer uh, talk about some of the big deer that you've chased, whether you've harvested them or, uh, you know, they've gotten away or, or, you know, you're watching them. Um, big deer do exist, don't they? <laughs> they do. They do. And, uh, they exist, um, they exist in more places than some people realize. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I've been intrigued with antlers since I've been a little guy and, unfortunately which you know I've, I've been lucky enough to harvest some great deer i'm still searching and and a lot of this is is in part because i archery hunt and and with a bow it's very very difficult but uh it's very difficult to target one specific deer and that's really what you got to do unless you just get lucky to harvest one of these next level deer so I, you know i if we just went over every big deer, we'd be here for a week. But, um, some of the bigger deer I've been involved with, uh, what, you know, I'm looking at them right now. Uh, my, a friend of mine, Cody Malbuff, a uh, great hunter, him and I, this is the last rifle tag I had, which was five or six years ago. Um, and there's a leftover tag, but, uh, you know, we decided we were going to hunt a certain area and he packed in there, packed some water in there. We're going to backpack hunt it. And he found this giant deer. And then we went into that hunt and uh, he ended up harvesting that deer and it went 133, just crazy mass. Um, you know, and the, one issue, one issue with the scoring deal is I obviously I, I score deer and uh, I talk about score and it's really just for reference because um, some of these giant deer score just really doesn't, doesn't uh, do them justice. Yeah. It doesn't do them justice. I mean, th when you have eye guards that are, you know, three inches wide and bladed and, but they're six inches long that scores the same as a time. That's 
you know, pencil tines, six inch long tines. So this deer, this 133 inch deer is just ex- uh, extremely massive. Um, his eye guards are extremely long and crazy and bladed and just, uh, is on my Instagram. If you scroll down there far enough, you can see him, but, um, <laughs> he shot that deer with a rifle and, uh, it really happened kind of quick. Um, I, not a ton of history with that deer. I've got some, I've had pretty bad luck really with, and it, it's, it really blows my mind because I try to hunt in places where other people aren't getting, um, but I had bad luck with some people harvesting some really great deer that I've been uh, targeting. Uh, the most recent being a 131 typical four point, just a giant deer. Uh, I found him, and then my intention. I the problem is is most of the deer that I've seen have been through the glass, but uh, a couple of them have been on trail camera. And the pr- one problem that I have is. Uh, I spread myself pretty thin trying to look at all these different places and I set trail cameras and a lot of times I don't get back to them for six, eight months. So this deer, uh, when I found him, you know, I was already after the archery seasons uh, in August. So I, I couldn't, I didn't even get a chance to hunt him. And then, uh, you know, I was going to go into the next year thinking this is the buck. I mean, this deer is special. This is the buck. And, uh, I went there in the springtime with a friend we're gonna do some lion hunting and i was just gonna spread trail cameras all over that country and uh i you know we ride up in there and i set excuse me set some cameras and we come back to the truck in the afternoon and just the oddest thing this this little two-track road that goes up in there and dead ends there's a guy parked there at our at our truck and trailer and uh you know it's just really odd but it was meant to be i think um I, you know, he starts trying to ask questions about the, the mules and the dogs and, and I almost blew him off. Not, not to be rude, but you know, you got all these dogs, you got to pack up and get the mules loaded. And, um, you know, I, I got an opportunity finally to talk to him and, and I said, yeah, you know, we were lion hunting and this is how it works and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, I got to talking to him. He said, yeah, well, I shot my first deer, my first coos deer here. And, uh, I just wanted to come back. Sink. Oh, well, I, 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 there was, there's, you know, that, that camera that he was on had 30 other bucks on it. I thought, surely he shot a two pointer, three pointer. <laughs> I mean, he could, there was 29 other bucks to choose from. <laughs> and, uh, he goes, yeah, I shot my first buck. I said, well, what did he look like? He said, oh, he was a, uh, he was pretty nice. He was a four by four. And my heart sank at that point. And I thought, well, you know, cause there's not a ton of four points on that camera. So. And I thought, you know, no way this guy shot this deer. And I said, you got to be kidding. You have a picture. And he said, um, I don't think so. I think, I don't think I do. Uh, my friends are telling me he's a really good buck, but, uh, you know, I'm not real sure. And I said, well, I pulled out a picture of him on my phone and I said, is this him? And he said, I don't know. It could be. (laughs) I said, great. So I, you know, I asked him how it went and he said, well, uh, you know, I, it was the only buck I really had an opportunity at. I shot him on the last day. I jumped him out of his bed, and he ran up on the hill and stopped, and I shot him. Oh. And I drug him back, and I, you know, the, finally he pulled out a picture. His wife had a picture on the phone, and, she, you know, they had cut his head off, and just it was laying there on the ground. <laughs> it just broke my heart, you know, this giant deer. And the guy, he had no idea what he had shot. Um, I think at, over time, enough people had told him that that deer was special, so... Uh, I asked him, you know, he offered to let me come and look at it. So I did so and I scored it and and I I came up with 130 and 18. And he said, yeah, I'm going to have Boone and Crockett score it next week. 
and you know he had the he had the the skull capped so i thought he was going to get it mounted and i asked him you're going to get it mounted he said no i like him capped like this i said well i've got a cape in the freezer you know this is a really special deer you really ought to mount it he said no i think i'll just leave it capped you know and i just pictured that skull cap just breaking in half and anyways rotting in the sun (laughs) yeah uh anyways he 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 messaged me a month later he took it in and had boone and crockett officially scored at 131 and one eight and just a special deer really bad luck that happened to me on another deer um i thought would be in the high 120s and um same thing didn't i really didn't find him until after the archery season or actually i take that back i found him in july but i didn't have a tag that year and i go through the go through the winter i decided to hunt a different deer so i didn't hunt that deer in the in the in january i was going to focus on him on in the next uh the next year and so the next year comes i got a picture of him so i knew he survived the next year comes and then the the, the mountain range catches on fire so i couldn't get in there set cameras scout anything and and it doesn't the the similar to some of the mountain ranges now that country was closed off until october so i got in there in october and i started looking around i never found him and then a month later i get pictures just out of pure luck of a guy uh, a guy shot this deer and he had lost from that you know that year of the fire where there it didn't rain at all the whole place burned up so he had no nutrition and he was old as heck and uh he was 121 but he had lost at least eight inches of uh extras so unbelievable that's uh let me ask you a question what does it take for a deer to get 125 130 in your mind you know having them on camera and seeing them with your own eyes and you know knowing the different ranges what is the ingredient if you had to put your finger on one ingredient that that allows those deer to get like that whether it be whatever whatever ingredient it may be what is it i i really don't think it's possible without mixing two ingredients and that's age and genetics so um i mean it's it's as simple as that they, they've got to get old enough and they've got to have the genetics okay but even more than that is there any characteristic is it you know close to private land close to rough country you know out in the flats uh oak country ocotillo is there one if you just think about some of the big bucks is there one ingredient that's like that is a characteristic or an ingredient that you have to have for big bucks other than than age and genetics hmm (laughs) you know tough question because i've seen them i've seen them in all of it um so that tells me that there's not one thing that you can hone in on and say i'm going to focus on this it's more of just got to spread my net out wide and and see what i can find Uh, yeah i would say so definitely so okay um let's talk trail cameras a little bit uh you run some trail cameras i do yeah i I, i've got about a dozen out at a time typically okay with always a handful of uh in more inexpensive cameras that i can slap on a tree somewhere you know if i come i always have one in my pack so but typically a dozen out at a time okay what makes a good trail camera set up in your mind <clears throat> well um obviously, obviously if there's deer hitting it but yeah. i mean more than that like what 
you know, what do you go, this is a good spot for a trail camera? So, you know, I've, I'll just, I'll, I'll talk about a deer that we're targeting right now. Um, I've got cameras in there right now. Uh, the way typically I find a lot of these deer is, is with salt in the summertime. So, but you, you, but you got to get into some country where you think a big deer can grow and you got to find the right soil and, you, you know, salt. But um, the problem with salt is they show up for you and then they disappear on you. So it'll, it's very, it's very, very, very difficult. All that really ever tells you is that they exist. And then from there, you have to start uh, changing it up. So heavily used trails where they converge, pinch points. Um, obviously the deer sign is a big issue. Uh, if the deer sign's there, well, you set a camera there, you're going to get some pictures. Does that mean that there's going to be a big buck walk by? No, it doesn't. So, um, if I have a big trail that has a ton of deer sign on it, and then I walk up the ridge a hundred yards and there's a trail with four or five fresh rubs, but a 10th of the deer sign, well, my camera's going on the trail with four or five rubs. Be, you know, I, I, if there's anything that can tell you that a buck is using it, then, you know, then leave a camera there. Uh, water, obviously, um, if you feel like that's where, you know, a bunch of bucks are watering, water is a big, uh, you know, a big success point for cameras, but there's a lot of negatives to water as well. Uh, people being one of them, you know, cameras in this day and age, unfortunately, they grow legs and walk away on you sometimes. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just your sign and, and tr heavily used trails and, um, benches, just benches with a bunch of, you know, deer sign on it and in near, uh, you know, all the things we've talked about already good North facing slopes and good vegetation and lots of mountain mahogany. I mean, I it really, if, if there's no mountain mahogany around and it's oak country, um, that doesn't mean I'm not going to look there and set cameras there, but I, I, I really just like to see that mountain mahogany. It's a big deal for me. Let's talk about trail camera timing as far as when are you getting a ton of photos and when do you, the photos just go away? So, uh, I think, you know, it's been talked about a lot, but on salt in the summertime, um, obviously once the rains come, those deer the bucks the does will use that salt all year long but in the springtime i see a pretty high influx of bucks starting to hit the salt again uh and then they'll kind of they'll kind of die off a little bit until they drop their antlers and in, in may and then throughout may it's pretty slow and then uh, once those rains start to come if that soil with the salt in it starts to get wet, those deer just start hammering it. And and they'll hammer it even if it doesn't get wet. Like this year was really dry. And uh, I saw a huge drop off in, uh, you know, buck visits to that salt compared to on a, on a wet year. But they still visited it. You know, they, they love that salt. Once they get close to rubbing um, and... Once they get close to rubbing, that really dies off. The, the does will continue to use it, especially the does with fawns that are gestating. For whatever reason, they really like it. Um, and then that, at, at times, you'll get random deer walk by that salt all the time. Just because as deer begin to use it more and more, they create trails, and it just naturally draws deer by it. They don't, might not necessarily visit it, but they walk by it. 
And then as the, as the winter progresses, uh, I, I transition a lot of cameras from my closet or, <laughs> or on salt to trails, uh, or I really like leaving cameras on scrapes. So if you can find a good scrape line, I have found that, you know, just about every buck in that entire drainage is going to hit that scrape. If it's the right, if it's, you know, it has all the right ingredients. So tons of deer sign, uh, good looking branch and, you know, just a nice pinch point that every deer is going to walk by it. Um, you know, I, I, I really enjoy leaving cameras on that. So when they harden up, when their antlers go hard, there's a, there's a couple month period where you don't get a lot of photos, but then as you start transitioning into the rut, you're focusing now on trails and scrape lines where those bucks and what you're saying is you'll probably end up getting most, the majority of the bucks in that drainage walking by that scrape at some sort, some point in time during the rut. Yeah, hundred percent. I, uh, you know, just as an example, last January, I set some cameras on some scrapes and, and every buck that walked by that scrape, I saw within you know, mile and a half stretch of country in there. I saw every, every deer I glassed up showed up on that camera. Um, and then a bunch more that I didn't glass up. And, uh, my uncle ended up killing a deer like three miles down the Canyon and the deer he killed had visited that scrape a week prior. When do you find that they start running the scrape lines pretty heavy? In other words, if you, if you could pin a, pin down some dates when does when does that scrape line become pretty active um you know around christmas uh last year i saw it a little earlier than normal um i saw it in the middle of december and uh, you you'll see them start to open scrapes up but whether they continue to get visited frequently or not early in december they typically don't but middle of december or uh, is when you start to see them to you know a slight degree and then around christmas time you really really start working them and that'll last until the breeding starts so uh let's last year the breeding in in my opinion was very early um I, i i believe a lot of deer got bred in december that storm hit around christmas and you know from everything i gathered from other hunters and then what i saw the first of january the rut a big a big portion of the does got bred in December last year. So that, you know, might've explained why I was seeing scrape activity early. Um, but if they, if they really don't get going until those don't start getting bred until middle, you know, 13th of January, those bucks are continue or they're going to continue to hit those scrapes until the breeding starts. And then once the breeding starts, they're more locked down and they're not traveling as much uh that that is correct and if they are traveling you there you know just that smell is in the air and and there's does just you know there's a good four or five day stretch where you know the majority of the does uh come into asterisk and those bucks don't have a chance to hit a scrape they are literally moving from doe to doe and uh and then once the breeding slows back down again i start to get some more buck activity hitting those scrapes again for the next week or so after most of the breeding has been done. Isn't so one you, of the challenges with those later December hunts, what people call the rut hunts. And my experience has been that 
you'll find a great buck you're glassing and you just see a buck and he's just basically walking kind of with his nose to the ground not nose to the ground like like trailing up a doe but more just kind of trolling and just kind of getting you know he's on a scrape line he's just walking how many times have you seen a great buck and literally he walks three four five ridges and he's just gone he just he's just covering country that's one of the challenges of of that late December hunt that I found is they're really not rutting so they're really not like locking in with those they're just moving and those bucks you know you see them you better get them killed because they, they could be a long ways from there your thoughts on that yeah 100 percent uh and you know when you start that later December hunt I might be more inclined to sit which this really isn't me I'm not a, a guy to sit on one on one hill and glass across the canyon all day I mean if I've if I've glassed uh, for the majority of the morning and I felt like I've seen the majority of the deer, like during November, I'm not going to stay there the rest of the day. But if the deer activity is like you're describing, there's a there's a good chance you might just see me sitting on one hill all day, just glassing across the canyon to, to see exactly what you're talking about. So at any point in time, you could have a bruiser of a deer you know, come over onto your, to, you know, the, the canyon across from you and just start working a trail and, you know, you might get a shot. Whereas in, that's pretty unlikely during November. Yeah. I, I want to cover one last point here with you and that's exactly that. And then I'll let you go. And we have, we need to do some other podcast episodes because we have a lot more to talk about, but specifically right now with guys that are listening that have tags for these earlier seasons you know now we're cracking uh into november here and you know you've got deer that are not rutting we've got you know it's cooled down now but expected to have warmer temps come back up uh talk a little bit about your strategy what i heard you say is if you sit in one spot this time of year and you glass for a full morning, there's a good chance you're not going to sit there and glass there in the evening. So do you always have kind of my morning spot and my afternoon plan in the back of your mind? Um, yeah, so, so that depends on uh, really one thing. Am I after a, a specific deer? Am I targeting one specific deer or am I not? So let's say, uh, you know, I, I got a friend who... You know, I've got a friend that from Michigan that comes down and hunts quite a bit. Let's say he drew a rifle tag, and he just want. I haven't really found a buck for him. I know some good country, traditionally holds good bucks. We're going to show up and we're going to hunt. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to find, we're going to find a spot that overlooks a ton of good country in the morning. And uh, but the big the the big thing is from that point, I want to be able to get to another point without too much effort so that's why i choose these big long finger ridges like you you were referring to earlier um but i want to be looking at some really good country in the morning uh, if if i can look at some south slopes as well great you know especially this thanksgiving hunt december hunt where those deer really actually do like to soak up that sun in the morning um but i really want to make sure i'm looking at some good north and west slopes as well with good vegetation and we're going to look at it uh we're going to basically let the deer activity determine what we do so if we get there and uh it's a full moon that night or even if it's not we get there and we're stuck glassing we glass up some bedded deer right off the bat and then we go another hour without seeing anything but it's really good looking country i'm not moving i'm staying there until those bedded deer 
that I saw, they get up and they feed for a pretty good while. And I start to see deer start standing up and feeding. And, and once I feel, you know, and it really comes down to experience. Uh, but when, you know, I, I feel like you should be able to look at a, a good hillside and say, you know what, there's deer there. And if I, if I've been here for an hour and I still haven't seen them, there's no sense in leaving. I'm going to stay here till I do see what I feel like is the majority of the deer, uh, visible from this place. So that could be, till eight in the morning because the deer are very active or that could be till 11 in the morning because the deer are inactive, but they very rarely go a good more than four hours, uh, without standing up and at least stretching and relocating their, their bed. So, um, uh, once I feel like I've seen the majority of the deer, I move on to the next, uh, place to glass. And from then on, from nine o'clock on, you're going to see me looking at North slopes for the rest of the day. And then hopefully I can look at as many different North slopes as possible before the evening, but come to, you know, two o'clock and later I, from two o'clock on, I'm typically looking at a really nasty North slope that I feel like has all the ingredients for a big buck to be on it. And I hear, I've heard a lot of guys, a lot of your guests say that, uh, you know, you want to be glassing, make sure you're glassing from that, you know, in that one o'clock, two o'clock time frame because a ton of bucks get up and they relocate, which is a hundred percent accurate. If so, what I tell a lot of guys is, um, don't ever stop glassing all day. So if, if you want to make a move to a new glassing point, do so, but sit down and start grinding it out again on North slopes all day long. And there's a good chance from 12 to two, you are going to see some bucks stand up and relocate in their beds that you hadn't previously seen. I'm not sure that I answered your question, but yeah, no, uh, one thing I want to go back to, there was so much good stuff there. One thing I want to go back to though, is you talked about if you're in a spot and there's good deer activity first hour and you've got a lot of deer moving and you get a sense and it's just from, 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 experience that you've seen most of the deer that are you know you've got really good movement and activity you've got different groups of bucks up does up you've got stuff feeding and then all of a sudden after an hour they you know you've got let's say 15 18 deer up and you're like that that deer's full of deer or that hill's full of deer and then you start noticing them bed down and you're not seeing them as much at that point in time you might pick up and move over two three four hundred yards maybe a half mile over to another knob and see if you can catch other activity on another hillside because what you said is you've kind of felt like you've seen what's there and what's moving around but conversely if you're sitting there and you know that's a good hill and you're not seeing a lot of movement you're in your mind you're not thinking they're not there you're saying they just haven't moved yet then all of a sudden let's say between 10 and 11 you get bucks up and stretching and quite a bit of movement then you kind of have a sense of, okay, I feel like I've seen that. Now I'm going to bounce over and look somewhere else. Did I, did I hear you correctly? hundred percent. Yep. And Nail you on the head. feel like some people, because they've been told to stay in one spot all day and they get their hour of deer movement and then they just stay there the whole rest of the day. In other words, they have, and of course, if we're looking for one specific deer and we know he's on that hillside, then we just stay all day. But do you feel like because people have been told to stay put and to glass all day, they're lowering their chances because they're actually just watching the same deer that they watched 
you know, at between eight and nine, and they watch between five and six that night the same exact deer. That's what yeah, you're saying. But you can become, you can spread your web out a little bit more if you can, you know, bounce over to another hill after you feel like you've seen the movement. Go try your try your uh, luck at another spot. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Okay, I think that's. A great tip to end on. Um, it's been an awesome podcast. You've been a great guest. I look forward to having you on again. I know the listeners are going to get a lot of uh, value out of it. I want to give you a chance to let people know, and I'll link it up in the show notes, how they can follow your Instagram uh, account. And so can you go ahead and tell tell us what your Instagram account is? And um, we're going to have to schedule another episode here. Yep. So it's just my name, Creed underscore Christian at C H R I S T I N A T. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been a good time, Jay. I appreciate it. Yeah. It's great to talk to someone that has the passion that you do. And I uh, look forward to us uh, hearing how you guys do on these upcoming hunts and, and I'll get you back on and I'll pick your brain a little bit more. So God bless buddy. Thanks for coming on and, sh- and sharing with us. Awesome, Jay. Thanks so much. We'll stay in touch. All right. Bye. All right. Bye.